Hello and welcome to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. I'm Susanna Streeter. I'm Head of Money and Markets at Hargreaves Lansdowne. And I'm with Sarah Coles, as usual, our Head of Personal Finance. So, Sarah, not long to go now until the Easter holidays, which I know for both you and I is going to be dominated by forcing a reluctant teenager to revise for exams. It's just not going to be any fun at all, is it? It's going to be a staycation in the worst possible way. But increasingly with the exception to the rule, because despite all the pressure of rising prices, people are still determined to get away. So that's what we're turning our attention to in this episode, which we're calling Travel Takes Off. Of course, we'll also be touching on the turbulence in the banking sector right now. But before we do, it's certainly fair to say the travel sector has gone through a storm over the past few years with Covid outbreaks and restrictions, China's ongoing curves and then worries about the cost of living crisis weighing on the sector. But it appears we might be through the worst of the turbulence with demand for seats on airlines, rooms in hotels and sun lounges in resorts recovering. Global air traffic is forecast to rebound to pre-pandemic levels by the middle of this year, according to industry forecasts, although there could still be some weakness in certain parts of the sector. We're going to be talking to Sophie Lund-Yates about the outlook for some of the companies operating here. Sophie, you're covering everything from staycations to overseas this episode, aren't you? I certainly am. We're going all over the place, really. I've been looking at a staycation specialist as well as an airline. Well, thanks, Sophie. We'll look forward to delving into those companies later. We'll also be having a quick chat to Laura Hoy, an ESG analyst at HL, who looks at environmental, social and governance issues. So, Laura, there's some environmental considerations when it comes to travel, aren't there? Yes, you're absolutely right. The travel sector comes with some unique risks that are definitely worth looking into if you're a long-term investor. Looking forward to hearing more about that later, Laura. Plus, we'll speak to Julia Labouye Said, who's the chief executive of the Advantage Travel Partnership, the UK's largest independent travel agent group, about how they're navigating the challenges and what the future holds. So, Julia, you must be facing one of your busiest times right now. Absolutely. We're coming up to a very busy Easter Bank holiday, so it's always busy this time of year. Well, we look forward to hearing much more about how the travel business is really being affected by all this change. Plus, Emma Wall will be talking to Jakob de Tuschleck from Artemis Fund Managers about a number of companies, including airlines and resorts. But talking about turbulence, it has been a pretty bumpy ride for the financial sector in recent weeks. And we can't move on without covering a little of what's been happening. Yes, it certainly has been a tumultuous week or so for financial markets and the banking sector, leading to the takeover of Credit Suisse and repercussions are ongoing. So let's just take you back. You may remember that on Friday, the 10th of March, Silicon Valley Bank, also known as SVB, was closed by regulators, marking the largest US bank failure since the global financial crisis in the late 2000s and the second largest in US history. After the news broke, trading in SVB shares was halted and we saw some pretty bold regulatory support in the US, guaranteeing all depositors money and the purchase of the UK SVB arm by HSBC, which did quell fears of a wider tech crunch. But later in the week, Credit Suisse became the focus of concern. It was on life support and Swiss authorities believed only a full transplant of the bank's divisions into UBS would restore stability to the banking system. But an operation of this magnitude is a significant risk for UBS and that's why it was only willing to pay just over $3 billion, less than half the price it shares valued the bank just before the rescue. Yes, the speed at which the 167-year-old institution deemed too big to fail deteriorated has rocked the banking sector. 
central banks have taken rearguard action to reduce the risks of contagion, so they've coordinated currency swaps to enable the smooth flow of money around the world to ensure financial institutions can easily tap into the dollars they need to operate. The question is, what happens next? Yes, focus is shifting to the implications of high-risk bondholders in banks after holders of more risky Credit Suisse debt saw their investment wiped out. As under the deal, those additional Tier 1 bonds were valued at zero. In bankruptcy proceedings, bondholders are higher up the queue than shareholders, but under the circumstances, the same rules don't have to apply. It's not yet known exactly where more pain will emerge in the banking sector, but investors fear the problems are not yet over. Shares in a number of big banks fell. Bigger lenders are still considered to be much better insulated. They've built up much bigger capital cushions since the financial crisis and have more stable deposits. They're also much less likely to have to sell off bonds, so they may have a paper loss right now, but instead they'll be able to hang on to them until they mature. The Bank of England said the UK banking system is well capitalised and funded and remains safe and sound. And UK banks are also in a much stronger position than many years ago, with more cash reserves to meet regulatory capital requirements. It's also useful to remember that cash deposits have some protection. So the Financial Services Compensation Scheme is an independent organisation which can step in to pay compensation if banks fail. So the first £85,000 you hold with any one institution is completely protected. But as risk aversion grips the sector, a big worry is that overall banks will become more cautious in their lending and worries are rattling investors about what repercussions a potential lending squeeze will have on the global economy. So it's not surprising, given all this volatility, that you might want to head away from all the turbulence in the financial markets and come back to travel. It probably won't surprise you that a big travel exodus has been underway thanks to a super busy half-term holiday and the lifting of travel restrictions in China. Heathrow Airport exceeded passenger levels for the first time since 2019 in February. In fact, they can pinpoint it to one day, February the 26th. That's all the biggest day in Terminal 5 since Christmas 2019. But while we've come a long way since the depth of the pandemic, the most recent figures from the Office for National Statistics in September last year showed overseas visits were still down more than 10% since the onset of the pandemic. The cost of living crisis will have played a part, as will the value of sterling, which means spending on overseas trips is higher despite us taking fewer of them. And the cost of travel has also risen more widely. So inflation figures for January show that the cost of flights is up by almost a fifth in the past 12 months. And the cost of package holidays is up on average almost 11%. And that could be enough to persuade some people to holiday closer to home. So Visit Britain statistics show that almost three quarters of us are planning an overnight stay somewhere else in the UK in the next 12 months, while around half are planning a trip overseas. They also noted we're still keener to holiday at home than we were before the onset of the pandemic. Unfortunately, for those staying in the UK, things aren't much brighter, with the cost of hotels up by almost a fifth. In terms of inbound tourism, things haven't returned to pre-pandemic levels either. Visit Britain expects there to be over 35 million visits to the UK this year. But while this is more than in 2022, it's only 86% of the level seen in 2019. And while they're expected to spend a record £29.5 billion after inflation, this is also down from pre-pandemic levels. There are plenty of forces at work in the industry. So what does all this mean for companies operating in the sector? Well, this does feel like a good time to bring in Sophie Lund-Yates, our lead equity researcher. So Sophie, we know that travel trends have changed massively in the last few years and you've been taking a deeper look into them, haven't you? Yes, I have. And I think really it makes a lot of sense to look at Airbnb, which has 
definitely been on a roller coaster ride since it listed in 2021. The company's been going since 2007 and now has over 4 million hosts in over 100,000 cities and towns, and there have been around 1.4 billion guests. So there's no denying Airbnb's scale and its attractiveness for holidaymakers, but that on its own, you know, doesn't mean it's a good investment. I've been having a look at things from that perspective. And one of the things to mention is the group's valuation. It's tough to look at a price to earnings trend because the pandemic really skewed things. But looking at how much the market is prepared to pay per $1 of sales, Airbnb's valuation has come down a long way, but it's certainly not in value territory. There's a lot to like about the business, especially when you take recessionary fears into consideration. I think, you know, if we see people pull back on more extravagant spending, we could see people choose shorter and domestic getaways, which would be a benefit for Airbnb. It's also free cash flow positive, which can be unusual for younger high growth companies and adds a layer of of resilience. Um, I mean, at the same time, looking longer term, I question growth potential. At some point, the market for Airbnbs will become saturated. I don't see a world where hotels become obsolete. So that puts a lid on things. I think there's room to run for now, but it's something I'll keep an eye on. For a bit of extra context, Airbnb had revenue of $8.4 billion and underlying cash profits, which you might see abbreviated as EBITDA, of $2.9 billion last year. So that's looking at where people might choose to stay. But what about getting there? It's a very good question. You're right. Travel is, of course, a crucial component of any trip. And with this week's theme in mind, I've been having a look at National Express. I doubt many of us have been compelled to think about the investment profile of National Express when we've been sitting on a coach. Um, But that's what I'm here for. So National Express has annual revenue of around £2.8 billion and underlying operating profits of just under £200 million. Now, in terms of longer term growth opportunities, as we pivot towards lower car usage and at the moment where trust in trains is pretty low, um, I think there's a lot to like about National Express. You know, it has a strong brand. um, It is a vital service for many people, not to mention it's a more affordable way to travel, which is obviously important at the moment. Now, the group's Debt levels are problematic, though, um, and net debt is approaching £1 billion. So this is a situation made worse from the fact that 20% of National Express's net debt is exposed to fluctuating interest rates. So higher rates make repayments a lot more expensive. There are a few things National Express can do to deleverage, so reduce debt. And that includes potentially selling its North American business, which might be necessary, um, but would also be a shame. You know, I view that as an attractive market. National Express has a school bus network in the States, which is a fun fact for regular UK users. Um, Wage disputes and associated costs in the UK are also a potential headwind. Now, ultimately, um, and for a few more reasons I don't have time to dig into on here, unfortunately, I think National Express has a lot going for it, but it's tough to get too excited until the balance sheet's sorted out. Thanks, Sophie. Really interesting to hear about National Express. But we can't do a travel episode without talking about an airline. So who have you been looking at here? I've been digging into Delta Airlines. So the US's Delta is one of the world's largest airlines with a global network covering 275 destinations and over 4,000 daily flights. Now, this aviation giant started life as a crop dusting operation in 1925 and then operated the first international mail and passenger route on the west coast of South America. Fast forward to today, Delta's exposure to domestic travel is noteworthy and domestic travel in the US is very competitive, which means Delta does 
face pricing pressure. Um, This will probably be more acute over the near term, um, but it's also well known for having a good business travel proposition compared to some rivals. Now, this makes Delta stand out. Um, It has a higher proportion of capacity at sought after hubs compared to other carriers. And that matters when you're going after business travel. Now, Atlantic and Pacific travel has seen a strong rebound following the restrictions lifting too. Of course, a steep economic downturn in the US especially could see downturn in demand for Delta services. So that is something to keep in mind. Ultimately, I think Delta Airlines is one of the better placed names in its sector. Its domestic business focus is a real benefit. Those strengths are reflected in a forward price to book ratio, which compares a share price to the value of a group's assets of 2.23. Thanks, Sophie. Plenty of companies to keep an eye on in this sector. But let's dig a bit deeper into what it's actually like operating a travel business right now and speak to Julia Leboué Said, who's the chief executive of the Advantage Travel Partnership, the UK's largest independent travel agent group. So, Julia, how robust has demand been during the cost of living crisis? I think it's quite interesting in, in, you know, if you look at the business in one lens and you look at the kind of macroeconomic climate out there, um, one could quite easily conclude that it'll, it's going to be affecting the travel industry. However, what we've seen, um, the desire to travel has been quite phenomenal coming out of the pandemic. Um, we cannot see and have not seen as yet the correlation between cost of living crisis and consumers' desire to want to travel internationally. It's been a really successful period, albeit, you know, two years of no trading um, doesn't make up for, you know, six months of, of you know, a very busy period. But um, the desire to travel is really high. Pent up demand is significant. And we're seeing that continuing right through to the end of this year. And do you think there are other various groups that are particularly keen to travel? Or are you seeing it sort of everything from families to older people and, and, and younger people as well? It's a real mix. We are absolutely seeing multi-generational families travelling and and a lot of research that we've seen really points to the fact that families haven't spent time together the last few years um, and they're really wanting to take advantage of it. You know, grandparents, you know, personal grandparents spending out on family, taking grandkids, etc. with them. We're seeing that market really coming back strongly. But even right across all the different demographics from young families, you know, young couples, singles, um, right the way through to bucket list holidays. And so in, in terms of the kind of breaks people are taking is you know has it changed those are people looking for you know further afield a bit more adventure or they're willing to spend a bit more money they are spending a bit more money um what we are seeing in particular interest is all-inclusive holidays have grown phenomenally part of that is it's very easy to budget you know what you pay before travel you won't be paying any more when you're out there other than some spending money so that's a real great opportunity to be able to accommodate people that are on a budget and more and more of our partners that we work with um, are able to provide that type of product but we're also seeing cruising cruising has grown phenomenally very popular Um, again it's really easy to be able to budget on a cruise holiday how about currency movements are they pushing up the price of holidays like we are seeing at home, you know, cost of travel has increased. You know, we are seeing rises right across the board. No matter where you want to travel to, prices have increased. However, there are some really great offers and deals around there. So it's not pricing people out of the market, that's for sure. But we are seeing cost increases, oil, fuel, um, accommodation costs, labour costs, operational costs have all increased and affecting the travel industry uh, as much as it has, at, you know, in, on, a, on a domestic setting too. Do you think people are prepared to take this on the chin? 
I think that's a really good question. If you look at it in one lens and you say, well, actually, you know, very difficult economic crisis, cost of living, people would be thinking about how much they're spending. It will start to, you know, waver interest, but but actually we're not. And you've got some really fantastic travel agents who are, you know, who are talking to their consumers. How do they make their pound go further? Where can they travel to that they can get better value? Are there some destinations that are sort of becoming more popular as maybe as more cost effective options? Yes, there are. You know, we've seen destinations such as Slovenia, Estonia, um, actually even Bulgaria that still offer exceptional value for money when you're out in destination. Um, that the volume isn't as great as you would expect for somewhere like Spain or Italy. Um, but certainly this destinations are up and coming. There are more flights made available from the UK. When you're there, the spending power of your pounds, even with the euro, is still exceptionally strong. So are you seeing then sort of a bit more demand for breaks maybe closer to home and sort of within the mix? Holidays closer to home, unfortunately, despite um, what we may think, tend to not always demonstrate the best value. And also product is quite limited. So for example, if we want to go down to the co- our beautiful coastal regions in the summer, what we tend to find is unless you're booking months in advance, it's very unlikely you'll find accommodation because we, we don't tend to build lots of new hotels every summer to accommodate any potential increase in demand. How concerned are you about the impact of strikes on international travel? We are concerned and we're concerned more around the optics, um, around what this means. And I think for a lot of people who probably haven't travelled over the last 12 months or since we've come out of the pandemic, are still a bit anxious. Um, there are lots of changes, not only since the pandemic, but also since Brexit and, you know, pandemic mastered a lot of the Brexit changes for travel. So passport changes. So when you've got lots of change, um, lots of things that people need to get used to, you've got headlines around strikes and the impact that may have, um, it does create uncertainty. And, and what we really want to try and do is ensure that people don't have to be stressed when they're thinking about travelling. So, yes, yeah, strikes clearly do create disruption. However, airports and ports have put in place contingency measures to really try and avoid any disruption for travellers. Thanks, Julia. Some really interesting forces at play in the market. Of course, when we're thinking about travel companies, including airlines, we can't overlook the environmental risks. And Laura Hoy, our resident ESG analyst, is here to give us an overview of what to look for. So, Laura, what are some of the risks investors should be mindful of? When we're talking about investing in travel stocks, aviation is kind of the obvious one that comes to mind. The emissions from a flight across the pond are more than twice what a family car would produce in an entire year. So airlines are really under a lot of pressure to find ways to trim their emissions. Now, the good news is that the fuel costs make up about a third of most airlines operating expenses. So cutting down is also good for the bottom line. There's that added incentive to improve uh, fuel economy. Now, there are a few ways to do that, but the most bang for your buck right now comes from updating your fleet of aircraft to be more efficient. And that can mean things like flying more people per plane, using lighter materials, um, and more efficient systems that reduce fuel burn. So are there any airlines that stand out when it comes to this sort of fuel management Yeah, so EasyJet is actually an industry leader here. Um, The group's shown an impressive commitment to reaching net zero, and it's been working to overhaul its fleet as a part of that. Now, they're not only buying new, more efficient planes, but they're also upgrading their existing fleet with lighter and space-saving seats. 
And IAG, which owns British Airways, is another leader. Their fleet is a little bit older than most of their peers, so there is a lot of work to be done. Um, but they've also been working on incorporating sustainable aviation fuel as part of their net zero strategy. Now, that's a biofuel, so it has the potential to cut emissions dramatically. However, for now, it only makes up a very small proportion of the fuel that's being used. Really interesting, Laura. So airlines are the obvious one, but is there anything to consider when it comes to accommodation, for example? Hotels also require a fair bit of energy, so it's of course important that they've got a good net zero plan in place. But from an ESG perspective, it's actually the G for governance that we're most concerned about when it comes to risk in the sector. So specifically, we're looking at guest health and safety, um, which plays a key role in building trust and confidence in, in a particular brand. So that means regular training, clear health and safety management policies, and, you know, that they're encouraging accountability. Hilton and Accor, which owns the Ibis, are two brands that are doing this really well. So what about labour relations? So given the cost of living crisis and inflation, a lot of these businesses employ minimum wage employees, don't they? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, you know, minimum wage is a legal requirement. But companies that go a step above with higher pay and better benefits are going to have happier, more productive employees and less turnover, which at the end of the day is going to be the cheapest option for them. Um, Intercontinental Hotel Group is doing this really well. They've got a pretty comprehensive skills and training program as well as a mentoring scheme that seems to be benefiting their employees. Thank you so much, Laura. It's always interesting to consider this aspect of any sector, and there's plenty to think about there. I should also add that a non-executive director of Hargreaves Lansdowne PLC is also a non-executive director of Intercontinental's Hotel Group. And now I'd like to bring in Emma Wall, our Head of Investment Research here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. She's been speaking to Jakob de Tuschdeck, a fund manager with Artemis. Hi, Jakob. Hey, Emma. So the Easter holidays is approaching, hence why we are talking about travel. And you have a number of different plays on the sector, don't you? Let's kick off with why you think this is a good long-term investment as a sector. The starting point is that there's a lot of pent-up travel demand. So the demand side is there. Unless the economy deteriorates a lot, people do want to go on holiday. Household balance sheets are in decent shape. And people have not been on holidays. Or there's a deficit of holidaying. And also, there is the whole Asian angle to it, that China was closed until very recently. So things like Macau have been closed for a while. And therefore, there's a lot of sort of both business travel, but also for visiting families, etc. On the other side, there is also the attraction that what COVID did, and what the supply chain disruptions did, and what the sort of new world order has done, is that there is a little bit of chaos everywhere. When China closed down, for example, a lot of airlines in the US let their pilots go. Now there is a deficit of pilots in the US. You've got to train them again. You know, you can't just mothball certain sectors and routes, etc., for a number of years and then just kind of turn it back on and get up to speed again. That's interesting for some companies because those who are strong can sort of start with a clean sheet of paper and say, what do we want to do? What kind of market share do we want to take? What kind of margins do we want to have? And some of the companies that we own are sort of the ones that we think are going into this from a quite strong point of view. Let's come on then to some of those businesses 
that you own in the portfolio. Kick off with the first stock you want to highlight today. A recent addition to the portfolio, Singapore Airlines, which is a traditionally a good airline. They will benefit from reopening in Asia. They will benefit from the fact that they did not fire their pilots during COVID. They are now getting them back. Uh, they will benefit from the fact that they're sort of a national champion. A lot of their investor base is local. The biggest shareholder is a local sovereign wealth fund. And what they can also benefit from is that they have the planes, they have a strong balance sheet, and a lot of the easy money. This is a theme we, we talk about in many sectors is that, you know, when rates are zero, money is slushing around the system. Rates are no longer zero. Speculative capital is no longer as visible as it was. So a lot of the competitive threats that they had, low-cost airlines or speculative airlines, they're, they're gone. And you have a, a more disciplined market. They're cancelling some routes that they don't see demand for today and opening up new ones with a reopening theme going on. Well, they, they rethink where the routes are, etc. So for us, Singapore Airlines is sort of a one way of getting exposure to China reopening, exposure to the travel theme, and do it via a company that might also have an additional competitive advantage versus where they were maybe before COVID. So that's one element of travel. You get on your plane, you fly to your destination. What happens when you get there? How are you playing the leisure theme, the hotel theme? Have you got any of that in the portfolio? We don't have a lot because you ultimately don't want to overexpose yourself. And we thought the airlines were sort of the first bit to go to a hotel. You have to go on an airline. But what we do have is we have exposure to Macau in China. And that is maybe a bit more, not stock specific, but sort of specific on China. China is reopening. The Chinese households have been saving money for a number of years. It's very hard to spend money when the economy is closed down. And we saw when the U.S. reopened after COVID, which is now a while back, there was a massive rush of consumer spending. You know, that's why we got all these inflation problems. You know, people had jobs, they spent a lot of money, et cetera. Well, one could maybe think that there'll be some kind of similar reopening effect in China and Asia. And we haven't seen that yet. It's really starting slowly. So we thought one way of getting exposure to that was to invest into the sort of leisure hotel casinos in Macau. And for those people who are unfamiliar with the regulation, the reason why Macau is a destination is because actually gambling's forbidden in mainland China, isn't it? Absolutely. So this is an old Portuguese area and it sort of has a bit of its own legislation around it. Not to say that it's not governed in a very strict way, but there's a bit of a sort of a, uh, a social contract, let's put it like that. And you got high-end stakes players and you got sort of more touristy people who, who just go and spend a little bit of money. But it is sort of a destination. It's like the Chinese Las Vegas, isn't it? Because you get shows and water parks. And there are conferences there. And, and a bigger and bigger part of the revenues of these companies are sort of the conferences, the hotels, the restaurants, the shows, and less and less the actual sort of what you make on the casino table. Although I would say the house always wins, but that's not really where, where you know, that's the that's why people go there. Um, and it is sort of broadening out a bit to the middle classes, etc. Look, I don't know if this is a theme we would run for years and years, but you would think that when the reopening happens, that there is a little bit of a sort of, we can call it champagne effect, you know, that is sort of 
shoots out and, and there should be a bit of a pop in travel there. So that's another one that we have exposure to. And again, the, without being too specific, you know, as you say, the regulatory environment licenses were recently renegotiated. So there is a bit more certainty about how long the licenses last, who has them. And that's what you need to invest in new hotels and hotel rooms, et cetera. And you have that now. So we thought again for the sort of early exposure, that was a good play. Jakob, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that was Emma Wall talking to Jakob de Tuschleck from Artemis. And please bear in mind that these are the views of the fund manager and are not individual stock recommendations. You're listening to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. And now it's time for the stat of the week. Uh, we'll stick with travel and more specifically nationwide spending figures. Apparently by the end of February... Two in five people had already booked their summer holidays. But who do you think, Sarah, was the quickest off the mark with a booking? (laughs) Well, normally I'd say people in their 40s because they're forced to stick to really expensive school holidays. So I reckon they're getting in there really early with the early bird discounts. But what's the answer? Go on, tell me. You're not quite right. It's actually those aged between 18 and 34, half of whom who've booked their holiday, presumably for a slightly better off-season bargain. I'm very jealous. In fact, I'm just too busy to think about booking holidays. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Me too. Well, that's all from us for this time. But before we go, we need to remind you that this was recorded on the 20th of March, 2023, and all information was correct at the time of recording. Nothing in this podcast is personal advice. You should seek advice if you're not sure what's right for you. Unlike the security offered by cash, investments rise and fall in value so you could get back less than you invest. Yes, this is not advice or a recommendation to buy, sell or hold any investment. No view is given on the present or future value or price of any investment and investors should form their own view on any proposed investment. And this hasn't been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research and is considered a marketing communication. Non-independent research is not subject to FCA rules prohibiting dealing ahead of research. However, HL has put controls in place, including dealing restrictions, physical and information barriers, to manage potential conflicts of interest presented by such dealing. You can see our full non-independent research disclosure on our website for more information. So all that's left is for me to thank our guests, Julia, Jakob, Sophie, Laura, Emma, and our producer, Elizabeth Hodson. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again soon. Goodbye. <laughs>